This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and this episode is going to be a little bit different. It's a compilation episode filled with the highlights from the past year. And as I went over and re-listened to all the episodes, it was a little overwhelming to try and narrow it down and select only a few highlights. There was something, or sometimes several somethings, in each episode that was really interesting. And this could have easily turned into a three-hour episode, which is probably a little longer than you'd like to listen to. But a few themes emerged, and that helped me organize this podcast. The first theme was passion. Every doctor and scientist I talked to was really passionate about what they do. And so much of this passion is directed to the treatment of patients, taking care of patients, developing new science and clinical trials and treatments, all for patients. That's at the core of everything my guests do. Some of the other themes we'll hear in this episode are advances in genetically engineering the body's immune cells to better fight cancer cells the overall growth of the James and the growth of multidisciplinary programs for specific types of cancer, advances in surgical techniques, collaboration. So many guests have used this word. It's part of the culture of the James and leads to better outcomes for patients. And finally, more and more procedures are being done on an outpatient basis. This trend led to the recent opening of the new James Outpatient Center that's a real game changer for patients. Let's start with a clip from Roman Skoraki, the medical director of the Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Center and the head of the James Division of Oncologic Plastic Surgery. In episode 148, I asked Roman what drives him. I mean, it's absolutely the patients. It's the it's our patients, and then my colleagues. I mean, I I can't over overemphasize. I think it's really that 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 family feel, and I think the certainly my colleagues. I feel like are part of that family very much so. But then also the patient becomes a member of that family, and so I think it's it's it, you you have that more than more than intellectual. Um, sense of responsibility is a very much an emotional attachment as well where you really don't want to let any of your family members down you really yeah. want to push that envelope you want to give them the very best and 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 try to figure out those things that uh, well you may not have the answer to um, and then it's it's nice to have that group around you we can all you know work together and and um, bounce ideas off each other and and really kind of move things forward Moving things forward is another trend. In episode 145, Samantha Jaglowski, a hematologist who specializes in stem cell transplants for patients with leukemia and lymphoma, talked about the growing CAR T-cell program at the James. Just, you know, in the last decade, really, you know, the ability to engineer either a patient's cells or a donor's cells to make them recognize cancer has really kind of come to the forefront and um, become one of the mainstays of treatment for us. And that's the CAR T-cell therapy. That's the CAR T-cell part. So CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. So basically these cells are co-incubated with 
currently, a deactivated virus that can train them to recognize um, markers on the surface of a cancer cell, whether it be a lymphoma cell or a leukemia cell, or as we'll talk about, a lung cancer cell or a sarcoma cell or a melanoma cell. Um, and, and these cells, these T cells, will then become kind of supercharged, so we can put them back into a patient. They get really excited because they recognize this antigen that's sitting there. They divide really rapidly, and then they all kind of coalesce to go fight the cancer. Samantha described how she has patients who are five and even 10 years out from their CAR T cell transplant and are doing great. I asked her what it's like to be at the forefront of this emerging treatment that is having such amazing results. It's fun. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. honestly, that's, um, at the same time, you know, you can never be satisfied with what you have. So, you know, as much fun as it is to be able to do that, at the same time, you know, it's always like wanting the next thing, I guess the next tie, if you will, because you still want to be able to do that for everyone. So, so one one success makes you more determined to get to the next success. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, as much fun as that is, and I think it makes it more frustrating when, you, you know, the next person doesn't have that same great response. The James is growing rather quickly, and Joel Marison, the director of the James Sarcoma Program, talked about the growth of the program he leads and some of the advantages of the team approach to treating cancer. When I first started here in 2001, uh, it was really me, myself, and I were the three team members. You were the only sarcoma surgeon. Correct. Wow. Uh, we had a, a general surgical oncologist that helped with some of the pelvic uh, operations in the soft tissues, but it was really me. And we've expanded the program today. We have three orthopedic oncologists. Uh, we have two general surgical oncologists who take care of the uh, inside pelvis around the abdominal and pelvic organs. Uh, we have uh, three plastic surgeons that when we take the tumor out, we need the defect filled in to yeah. to cover the wound. Uh, we have three medical oncologists that give chemotherapy on chemotherapy trials. Uh, we have um, three radiologists who work with us very closely. Uh, we have two radiation oncologists and two pathologists that work with us on our team. Uh, one of the medical oncologists we've hired in the past year to help us improve uh, the number of clinical trials that we have. And our third orthopedic oncologist is coming this fall as well. So 20 years ago would not have been unusual for a hospital, even a fairly big hospital, to only have one sarcoma surgeon, I take it. It was pretty common. There are only a few hospitals yeah. in the country that had more. Um, and today there still are only a few. There are about 175 to 180 orthopedic oncology surgeons in the United States. Wow. So that, the, the, what I was thinking was that's the whole point of a, a large hospital connected to a comprehensive comprehensive cancer center here at the James where you have that team of experts approach that you don't have at smaller hospitals. Absolutely. They, it, it helps with the patients from the time they're referred to us because they get to see us in a coordinated fashion. The medical oncology team is right next to us in clinic. The radiation oncology team is just downstairs and so we can coordinate their care as soon as we have their diagnosis. All of the surgical teams operate in one cancer facility and so yeah. if something crops up that we're unexpected we can have someone just pop over from another 
their operating room and help us. And so it absolutely markedly improves their cancer care. Yeah, that team approach for each, for a team for each different type of cancer seems to be where the James is going. Absolutely. And I think that's um, one of the great things about the James, and, and it really differentiates us from the yeah. other um, cancer treatment sites here in central Ohio and beyond um, because they just don't have the breadth and depth that we have to, to provide that team care all in one location on, on a regular basis. Joel also filled us in on a kind of amazing new surgery that has been a real game changer for patients whose cancer is so advanced they need an amputation. Unfortunately, about 10 to 15% of the time, we're unable to do a limb salvage operation for patients. And so we were one of the pioneers in the world in utilizing a technique called targeted muscle reinnervation to help with phantom pain and to help with pain after surgery. And what that is is the cut ends of the nerve after an amputation, they are sewn into a motor branch that controls a muscle. And so the nerves have something to fire into rather than just firing into open space. We find that it creates less scar tissue and that it markedly decreases their risk long-term of having phantom pain. Yeah, I've heard about this and I actually met someone through Pelotonia who I believe you and Roman Scrocky did that surgery on them. Yeah, so we've uh, we started this about eight years ago, and it's now become commonplace in the entire country. Um, and some of the trials we did here in the early studies were what brought that to standard of care here in the country. We covered a lot of ground with Tim Pollack, a surgical oncologist who specializes in liver and pancreas cancers. Tim is also the James Surgeon-in-Chief. I was curious and asked him how and why he became a surgeon. Then I asked him, what makes someone a great surgeon? I took my surgery rotation. I actually took it first because I wanted to get it out of the way, and I fell in love with surgery. Um, I thought I wasn't going to love surgery, and it was just something very, very powerful about um, you know that moment that a surgeon has with the with the patient. It's a very special relationship, I think. Um, unlike many other relationships in medicine, the level of trust that a patient and a surgeon has. Um, that the patient um, allows you uh, to uh, essentially, you know, touch them and heal them, um, you know, remove part of their body, you know, um, sew things together. I mean, think about the level of trust there. It's really mind-blowing. And I think for surgery also, it's, it's a very kind of sentinel event um, in the sense that patients will text me, they will email me, they will send me cards and say, today was the day three years ago that you took out my pancreatic cancer. Today was the day five years ago that you took out my liver cancer. And so I think for patients, it's a, it's a very kind of specific event in their life, kind of like a wedding or a death or a birthday. And so the bond that a surgeon has with their patient can be very, very strong. What makes a great surgeon is, is being compassionate, being empathetic, um, realizing that a lot of it is about the technical aspects of, of the operation, yet a lot of it's about like meeting people where they're at. Um, getting a cancer diagnosis can be um, scary, it can be ambiguous, it can be uncertain. Uh, people have questions. You know, people um, need um, and want and deserve a surgeon who is compassionate and caring and can listen and be there not only for the patient but for their uh, family. Tim also filled us in on the growing 
trend of minimally invasive surgery, which is also sometimes called robotic surgery, and a new type of surgery in which chemotherapy is part of the procedure, and he gave us a few examples. Yeah, and we also have a very busy robotic uh, thoracic oncology program. In fact, we have the busiest robotic uh, therapy. thoracic chest can you know lung cancer program yeah. in the state under Dr. Bob Merritt's leadership. So that's been a real uh, focus of um, you know, growing surgical programs in cancer. We want to minimize the stress of the operation as much as possible. And while all patients may not be candidates for minimally invasive surgery or a robotic surgery, there are many patients who will be candidates, and um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm really proud that we've been able to build that program at the James, and and the James now is really one of the premier institutes in in the country offering uh, complex surgery through minimally invasive robotic approaches. You know, under Dr. Alex Kim's leadership, we've really grown um, our um, peritoneal cancer program and our um, arterial infusion program. And what these are is some patients actually have cancer that's kind of spread throughout their abdomen. And um, that can be a very challenging situation. And there's a very specific operation that requires um, considerable expertise to remove the cancer throughout the abdomen and then administer chemotherapy directly into the abdomen. So not through an IV, which is the traditional way, but directly into the abdomen. And so um, that program has grown, you know, two, threefold over the last several years because of Dr. Kim. And now many patients, not only from Columbus and Ohio, but even, you know, regionally are coming to the James to um, get this, um, get this uh, surgical treatment and this chemotherapy. And then Dr. Kim also has um, really led the way for um, our pump program. And what that is, is unlike um, putting the chemotherapy actually into the abdomen or in an IV, we actually, for patients who have a lot of cancer in their liver, sometimes will place a pump, it's almost like, looks like a hockey puck, underneath their skin, and then load that with chemotherapy. And then there's a small catheter that leaves that hockey puck, and we place it, this catheter directly into the artery feeding the liver. So we can deliver high-dose chemotherapy directly to the liver. And so this allows us to give higher doses of chemotherapy to the liver while minimizing systemic side, yeah, uh, side, side, effects. side effects. I ended my talk with Tim by asking him about the rewards of being a surgeon. So the rewards of the patient. If you come to my office, you're going to see pictures of me and my patients. I was just telling the residents yesterday about a patient I operated on 15 years ago you know, who had a very bad problem. And um, I operated on her about 15 years ago, and her husband just called me a couple months ago, and she passed away from another reason. But, uh, you know, have someone who came to me 15 years ago who thought they had weeks or months to live, and then, you know, I'm not saying it happens for everyone, but then I was able to operate, and she had 15 wonderful years. I had a great relationship with her, her husband, and then, the ha- you know, that bond, he reached out to me. We talked about her great memories. You know, when someone, you know, sends me a card, someone sent me a card, and it, it was um, a patient walking his daughter down the aisle. Wow. There you go. So 
it sounds right. like you were able to combine all the things yeah. you wanted so to. Yeah, that, so that's what it's about, right? That's what it's about. It's about this personal journey. You know, life is hard. We're all in this together. And it's the, it's the personal piece and the scientific piece. I always get choked up because, like I said, yeah. it's not professional. It's personal. And just really wanting to help people, you know. That, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's the most rewarding thing. One of the more innovative types of minimally invasive surgery is something called Whipple robotic surgery. In episode 136, Mary Dilhoff, a specialist in pancreas cancer and the director of the James Pancreatic Cancer Multidisciplinary Clinic, described the Whipple procedure. And in this clip you're about to hear, she described the basics of robotic surgery. So the really great thing about technology is you really get a very similar operation inside. We just do it through six small incisions. Six. Yep. Okay. So you take, so we make the small incisions. We put these trocars into the abdominal wall, and that's where we put the instruments through. A trocar? A trocar is just a tube. It's a metal okay. tube, essentially. Tube. Okay. So you put those, and that's what we put our instruments through, and then you dock the robot, which is simply a machine that we control. So the robot right. has no brain. <laughs> right. It is not performing any of the operation. Everybody thinks it might be autonomous. Yeah. It's not performing anything autonomous. So we dock that I know, robot. I think that's a misnomer robotic. It it's definitely <laughs> is. Like people think that maybe it has some function at this point in time. It really is controlled by us. And we sit in the same room. We sit at a console. And that's the real fun part of it. We sit comfortably at a console and you then control those robot arms through two controls that you sit comfortably and control. Now you have six um, points of entry because each one is where you put a certain something that allows you to have the vision and the tools you need. So six is the number of, so each one has instruments put in Exactly. In so one will be a camera. Yeah. Then there's three robotic arms that are working. And then there's two other assistant arms. So we actually still have a trained person at the bedside that's assisting in the operation. So they'll usually use suction or help us retract in that. So that's those other two are assistants. And then one of them gets lengthened very slightly. And that's what we take out the tumor the, and the organs oh, out of oh, after putting it in the bag. Because you need one incision larger to remove things. And the thing that always fascinates me, the skill required is it doesn't seem natural because you're not, you're looking at a TV screen and adjusting instruments. It must take practice to learn how to do that. I mean, there really is, just like you said, it really is practice because it is slightly different than when we operate yeah. open, which is a lot of us have learned open and are real experts in open. There are really good things also, though, about the robot. It's magnified 10 times. Your, and the, vi your vision. The vision is. And yeah. so, and it's in 3D and um, the camera is still and you have control of it. So it's, you know, there's no motion, it's not moving. And so you really, um, in some ways, you can see some of those small areas that you're trying to put sutures in better than when we are operating. Yeah. Sometimes we even operate with what we call loops, which are little microscopes on our on glasses. But those those usually magnify two times. And so we really do have a way to see a lot better um, using the robot. The Pancreatic Multidisciplinary Clinic is one of the many clinics at the James that treat one specific type of cancer. Mary described this team approach. So this is a great team. And this is really a patient-centric um, 
way to take care of patients with pancreas cancer. So we know patients with pancreas cancer need care from multiple people, from a medical oncology to surgical oncology to radiation oncologists. And then our pharmacists, our nurses, our physical therapists, our nutritionists, all of those people have a really important role in taking care of our patients. And this clinic is a way that we can, they can, the patients can see all those people on one single day. So they'll come in, they'll get their imaging and lab work in the morning. They'll see our nurse practitioner. We have a tumor board in which all of those specialties with the radiologist will sit down and look at the images, review the case, and decide the best course of um, care. And then they'll see all the doctors in the afternoon. So really in one day, they can really get a full opinion from all those physicians in a really um, efficient and high quality way. Episode 143 was one of my favorite episodes. It was a compilation of the favorite Pelotonian memories of my guests. Everyone at the James is involved in Pelotonia as a rider, as a volunteer, challenger, and fundraiser. And then there's Mary Dilhoff, who we just heard from. And Mary has a very unique way of participating in Pelotonia. Many memories of Pelotonia, but my favorite one of all the years was the first year I decided that since I was a little scared of biking and getting on a bike always made me a little frightened that I was going to wreck, I decided that I was going to run as much of Pelotonia as I thought reasonable. So early in the years, I started in the 30-some miles, which people thought was crazy. You ran 30 miles. I ran 30-some miles. but on, then the, on the day of Pelotonia. On the day of Pelotonia, <laughs> I would start, and I always love to finish at the end. So I like to finish with, you know, the party and in, everybody. In Gambier, in Gambier. At College. Yes. Okay. So I always plan it out so that I can finish there. But every year, we've been growing this, um, this the amount of miles, and... Several years ago, my dad was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer two years ago. And so when he was 72 at that year, I decided I was going to celebrate my dad, who is still alive thanks to the James Mm. and is getting treated here at the James. I was going to run 72 miles for him. And so... Um, I had never ran 72 miles before. Not many, not many people have. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I do love to run and run a lot, just not that much. So I um, decided I was going to, I didn't want to run overnight by myself up on those streets in rural oh, Ohio. Oh, 72 miles would take... It would take me a long... It would yeah, take me, yeah, than, yeah, like to more than 12 hours. Yeah. So I was like, well, I can't do that at night by myself. So I started on Friday night after work and I ran until dark. <laughs> And so I ran 20, the first year I ran 20 some miles that night. And then I stayed at home, slept a few hours. I drove my car then up 50 miles or so from the end. And then I finished, you know, to make 72 miles and finished at the finish line. Well, first of all, when you woke up Saturday morning, you'd run 20 the night before and you had 50 ahead of you. What did your body tell you? It was actually <laughs> shockingly not that bad. Really? Yeah, the, the one thing that we're like, I wasn't, we're not racing, right? So yeah. like I usually pester a friend to come with me and, you know, we would just chat and run and we'd stop at water stops yeah. and see the bikers. And it's always fun now that we've done this several years now, it's always fun. I start early in the morning cause I don't want to interfere with the bikes either. So I'll run on the left-hand side and usually start at daylight and I'll, and then it's always fun trying to see, like, try to get as far as we can to see the first bikes passing us. So then we, you know, we'll start seeing the bikes come by, and it's a lot of fun to say do, hi. Do the people talk to you? Almost <laughs> everyone asks us, where's your bike? <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty amazing story. 
Another Pelotonia rider is Dave Cohn, the interim chief executive officer of the James Cancer Hospital and the chief medical officer of the James. Dave played a big role in the opening of the new James Outpatient Center, and he filled us in on episode 142 about the reasons why the center is needed, what will be done in the center, and also about how it's extremely patient-oriented. I would say there's three main purposes of creating this building. Number one is to create innovation. So I think that what we do here at The Ohio State University, the Wexner Medical Center, and the James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute is innovation. And so the ability to actually perform research and clinical trials in that building is key to what we do, the principles of an academic medical center. Uh, The second piece is allowing for new programs to develop. So we have a really innovative process of ensuring that a variety of different types of programs are going to be housed there that are going to allow that innovation to create new um, developments and new structures. And then the third piece is to allow expansion of the cancer program. Uh, In really simplistic terms, the demand for cancer services in central Ohio, in the region, in the state, and in the country is beyond what we've ever seen before. So we have to expand our footprint to accommodate the number of patients that are needing to be seen at the James, and we're responding with, uh, with this type of a structure. This building is different than the James Cancer Hospital because it's an outpatient facility. So patients are not staying for days and days like they would here in the James proper. Um, So a lot of cancer care is moving to the ambulatory location, whether it's surgery, whether it's infusion services, clinical trials, and other um, examination in the clinics. Those are all ambulatory, and that's everything uh, that will be housed in this building. It's a very patient-centered approach. So whenever we think about you know, what we do here at the James, it is putting the patient at the center of everything we do, having the convenience of radiology, biopsies, examination, infusion, all in one building, and for those patients that need to be uh, admitted after a procedure, having that 24-hour or less uh, location for their stay as well is absolutely the key to patient-centeredness. We're going to finish up with one of the more emotional episodes of the year. Episode 128 featured Dr. Samik Chowdhury and one of his patients, Bob Bioni. Bob has been part of two clinical trials that Samik led. They target the FGFR genetic mutation that led to Bob's pancreas cancer. The drug that was part of the first clinical trial worked well for more than a year, and then Bob's cancer returned. This was expected, and Samik and his team at the James, they had a new clinical trial that they'd started and a new drug to treat Bob with. In these first two clips, Bob talks about his initial diagnosis and then his first visit to the James to meet Samik. In 2017, my world crashed. That was a terrible year for me. Our anniversary was in December 2016. Two months later, uh, I started having abdominal pain one evening. It was actually February the 15th, day after Valentine's Day. Um, Took some ibuprofen, uh, went to bed, didn't help, woke up. uh, The pain had radiated around to my upper back, and I had nausea and couldn't eat. I told my wife, something's wrong. I went to the ER. They originally thought maybe it was a gallbladder problem, and further tests showed that it was pancreatic cancer. Uh, Needless to say, we were just shocked, devastated. 
um, why me? You know, it's so, such a rare cancer. And I knew just from what I'd seen in the past, uh, the survival rates were really low. I went in there feeling kind of hopeless. And by the time my wife and I left, I felt, and we both felt very optimistic. Um, we saw, I don't know how many people up there. First, I had to qualify for the study, and it was about two days of testing. But once I got uh, to Dr. Rochattery's office there, and it started with the person downstairs that checks you in at the reception desk. Every single person was just wonderful. They just treated you so nice. Um, I saw uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, medical assistants, uh, research assistants. I, I can't. I think one day I counted that I saw close to ten people. Uh, some of the research assistants brought in other people, and every single one of them just made you feel at ease. And then I, I meet uh, uh, Dr. Rochowdery and. As you can see what he's talked about so far, he talks to you in common terms that you understand and uh, uh, gave me a lot of hope, both of us. I, I felt really comfortable and fortunate to have been uh, taken into the study by the time I left there. In this clip, Samik explains the basics of the new clinical trial that Bob is on. We talked about a new FGR for our drug. So, so this time around, the clinical trial is a FGFR that's a little more focused than panatinib. Uh, this drug is called infogratinib, uh, and it's been better studied in liver cancer and bladder cancer. And again, in our study, we're reaching out to patients with a variety of cancer types, including pancreas cancer. The idea being we think it's genetics-driven, right? If we treat patients based on the genetics of their cancer, not just where it came from. And fortunately, we were able to qualify uh, and get started on the treatment. And I was very, very impressed with the response we've had. Uh, we, we've seen spots in, in the lung disappear almost. Uh, we've seen the blood marker decrease from around 2000 uh, to 40 or so. Uh, and, and so we've gotten a really good response. Uh, and then once again, you know, we've treated it. I don't think we've gotten rid of it. And I'll say the same thing again. If, if it were to start growing again, we'd probably go back to another mix of the chemotherapy, and then we'll wait again for another development for new FGFR drugs, uh, because that's what we're doing in the, in the lab. So, so our mission is to bring patients hope with new therapies, uh, and not only is the research inspired by our patients, but it's going to come back, right? We can take this finding to the laboratory, learn about drug resistance, partner with pharma to develop new drugs. Uh, and, and so our goal again is to bring hope with new therapies. Samik calls patients like Bob who enroll in clinical trials, he calls them heroes, in part because of how their participation in the clinical trials leads to better outcomes for future cancer patients. I asked Bob if he considered himself a hero. Well, I'm, I'm really glad if I could do anything that would maybe save one patient in the future. Uh, but no, no, I don't. I mean, I, I was backed into a corner. I had no other options. My options were the chemo wasn't working, uh, try this second clinical trial, or do nothing, 
and uh, it was I, I didn't even consider do nothing uh, after the success I had with the first one. Uh, and like I say, I fully trusted him. And uh, now it's you know I'm in my sixth year uh, since my diagnosis. Going to it'll be six years shortly, and I'm still here. Thanks for listening. And in the coming year, we'll continue to talk to the scientists and physicians and patients of the James all about the incredible work they're doing to create a cancer-free world. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.